welcome to this week's edition of the uh, Insights Podcast. I'm David Campbell. I'm Don Mills. Well, Don, uh, a little bit different than our usual conversation. We talked today with uh, Donald Savoie about his new book, Canada Beyond Grudges, Grievances and Disunity. And uh, hmm. it's a very interesting book. It's, uh, he talks a lot about our, our long history of victimhood across the country. Everybody's a victim. Uh, and he helps us understand what that means and how we get beyond our, our sort of collective sense of victimhood. Yeah, just before we get into the conversation, I just want to mention that, you know, Denial Savoie is a, such an important uh, uh, person in terms of the history of economic development in, in our region. Uh, of course, he was heavily involved in the formation of ACOA. And, um, you know, uh, he's written... Uh, so many books. Uh, he's been involved apparently with more than 50 in collaboration with others. He, he told us that uh, he's written 28 on his own. Uh, he's got another one coming next year. Like it's, it's really amazing. His contributions to the discussions about the economy in this region are unparalleled. Like he is uh, like a, such an important figure, I think. So happy to have him on the program again. And and by the sounds of it, we're going to have him on again next year with his new book, which uh, tackles the thorny issue of uh, growth in um, government, um, which I think is a topic that would be close to my heart, probably close to your heart as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we did sort of diverge a little bit into that into this in this conversation but i think the two things are are linked i just want to tell you a quick story i know i know we don't have a lot of time here but um, a few years ago i i had a conversation with a young immigrant uh, lady uh, she'd come to the country she had moved to new brunswick she just loved canada she thought it was a wonderful place and i walked away from that conversation very heartened and then last year she took to social media and she said i had just take i just took dei training and she said, we've been lied to. Canada is a deeply racist country. And I was so disheartened by that social media post. And, and I, I tried to understand what does that mean? So DEI training is supposed to be about making things better, about trying to make things more inclusive, more diverse. And so, but if our goal is to sort of just make all these young immigrants and young people angry, I don't think that's part of the solution. So we do get into that today uh, in our conversation with Donald, but I don't know what your thoughts are on that. We've got to find a way to be able to have open and honest discussions about our history without right. sort of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. <clears throat> well, it's been a concern of mine for a while, you know, trying to whitewash history. You know, there's good and bad with historical figures, obviously. Uh, John A. McDonald's a good example. I mean, you know, you, He's done. He did some things that, in in hindsight, were bad. I, I, I'm not sure he wanted to do that uh, um, uh, uh, purposely. Uh, but now we have to expunge his name from the history books. That doesn't make any sense, right? Uh, I, I, so the topic of his book is a good one. Like you know, it's all around the sort of things that we're talking about. It helps explain a bunch of things. You know, <clears throat> uh, one of the things I'm currently working on is the need to rebrand <clears throat> Atlantic Canada especially in the three maritime provinces. You know, we've been historically known as a have-not region forever. I think that impacts people and how they view themselves. Um, you know, we need, to, we need to stop that conversation, especially now given our progress. You know, uh, we're three of six or sometimes seven provinces that receive equalization. We're the only provinces that are referred to as have-not. In our conversation with uh, Denal, he talks about all the money that flows into Ontario for the auto sector. That far exceeds anything that Atlantic Canada receives from equalization. And, but they're not referred to as a have-not <laughs> province. This gets back to the victimhood uh, side of things where, you know, we feel, uh, you know, that we've been hard done by. We, you know, we, we are, we're too dependent on government as a, as a result of our lack of economic uh, progress. That is changing, fortunately. Now we need to change the conversation about Atlantic Canada, uh, the Maritimes in particular. And I'm not taking it anymore. I don't know about you. And, you know, we're not a have-not region. We're no more a have-not region than any other part of the country. And, um, and like, you know, we need to stop that conversation in its tracks. Yep, I agree with you. And I think you raised the issue of Canada's penchant uh, 
love for the word sorry. And Donald talks a lot in his book about all the apologies that pol- that politicians and premiers and prime ministers have made over the years. But I think he his take on it, and maybe yours too, is that that's actually a pretty positive thing in the sense that we're able to recognize you know, when, when things have been done wrong and that we need to address those wrongs, but it can't totally dominate the conversation. We still have to focus on the good and everything that's right about this country. And Savoie says himself, there's no other place in the world he'd rather live. Uh, and uh, and I, I agree with him. I think Canada's a great country. It's a country that has its flaws. We need to work on those flaws, but we need to focus on the fact that this is this is a, a, good, a good country to live, although it is two old white guys, you and me, <clears throat> That's true. We got a biased point of view, obviously, but I just want to say, you know, uh, one thing that I really take uh, issue with that Boyev uh, has been talking about, saying that uh, Canada is broken. Canada is not broken. Far from it. You know, we're we're a country that actually debates issues and tries to resolve them, unlike our neighbor to the south. You know, uh, we 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 don't shy away from the challenges. You know, we're a diverse, big country. Uh, we, you know, it's number. It, it's the best country to live in the world from almost every aspect. It's rated that way internationally. You know, I, I, I take real uh, um, umbrage with that statement. We should, we should not accept that kind of talk in Canada. Sure, we have problems. We're, we're evolving. We're, we're getting better every year. But you know, we lead the world in, in accepting international. Uh, uh, you know, uh, migrants coming to our country. We're the most diverse country in the world. Uh, You know, we're dealing with language differences, uh, geography differences, and we're doing it as well as anybody else. So like, you know, we have a great country. It it has its flaws, of course. Let's recognize them. Let's work on them. But let's not accept that that rhetoric that we're broken. On that note, uh, thank you for that. Uh, here's our conversation with uh, with uh, Donald Savoie on his new book. Donald Savoie, welcome to the Insights Podcast. Good to see you again. Thank you for having me. Good to be here. So I think uh, you've written a very interesting new book called Canada Beyond Grudges, Grievances and Disunity. It's a little um, maybe could be perceived as a little bit outside the topic area of what Don and I do here on this podcast. But I think as we go through this, it will become obvious that that uh, th- this issue is important. Uh, as we think about Canada, we think about development, we think about growth, and we think about the future. So I guess the very first question for you, Donald, is why did you decide to write this book? Well, I was involved with a group of academics from Western Canada a few years ago. Uh, they were putting together a collection of essays uh, and they were asking some pretty fundamental questions about Canada, whether the West should stay in or opt out. And I became quite concerned that uh, we Canadians don't appreciate what we have. And so I did participate. I did produce uh, a chapter for that book. Um, but it led me to think about how the other regions view themselves uh, uh, in the Canadian family. So I took off from that and I decided to write a book. Um, Donnell, this book is <clears throat> quite different from your other books that you've written. It's, there's more of a, a personal opinion in this, I think, than previous books. <clears throat> I guess you're at the age where you feel you can get away with that, maybe. But you use the term uh, victim. We are interested in the use of that term. Uh, why not use a softer, softer term like maybe, you know, unfairly treated? Why did you use the, the term victim? Well, first, you're quite right. I've reached a stage of my career where I can take some some freedom and write what I want to write about. Um, <laughs> it, it is indeed personal. Um, I think victims is a loaded term, and I wanted to capture the attention of Canadians. This is something we need to think about. Uh, Canadian unity is not something that we should assume. It's something we have to keep working at it. And every region in this country, for reasons that we can get into, view themselves as victims. And it starts with my own community. So yes, it is personal. Because, you know, when I was growing up in the 50s and 60s, um, we clearly saw ourselves uh, you know, as victims. And we grew out of it. I no longer see myself you know, at all. And it begged the question, how and why? And so, and then it begged another question, can other groups follow the same path as we did? So, yes, it is personal. Yes, victim is a loaded term. Yes, um, I did it really knowing that it was a loaded term. 
You know, I spent a lot of my career talking about the attitudinal challenges that we have in, in Atlantic Canada. I think it, it's related to this topic a little bit. Uh, you say that the culture of victimhood uh, goes all the way back to confederation. I think that's an interesting um, conversation because, uh, you know, it would be helpful for you to provide us with a little history uh, and maybe some examples of why you think it goes back, back to the formation of uh, confederation. Well, I'm well aware of your work, and I know you've been working um, a fair bit with this. Um, yes, we. it goes back to Confederation because the Confederation was born out of a deal, but it was a deal between two provinces. It was not a deal between 10 provinces. And so they struck a deal to the benefit of Ontario and Quebec. New Brunswick and Nova Scotia were simply added on because we became part of the compromise. We were told that uh, Ontario and Quebec would never agree, and New Brunswick and Nova Scotia would be the honest broker. Prince Edward Island and the Promising Newfoundland looked at it and said, no, that, that deal is not going to work. So they backed away. And so that deal indeed does not work well. It does not work well for us. And so from day one, uh, we, we sowed the seed for victimhood. And if you go back to 1841, uh, the Durham report, <coughs> excuse me, uh, it's clear that the Durham Report had an agenda. And that agenda led Quebec to view themselves as victims. Because there was no question that Durham said the, be the best way to deal with this is to assimilate uh, the province of Quebec as quickly as possible, get rid of the Francophone culture. Uh, Roman Catholic is backward you know, in terms of religion. It was clear. It was throughout his whole report. And so from 1841, in 1867, Quebec said, this, this, this is not a good deal for us. This is not working. And indeed, it was not working. That's why it collapsed. And so they passed it up, and they passed it up to find a, a way to make it work between Ontario and Quebec. They held with us. Um, and so that's how Canada was really born. Yeah, I just want to follow up on that <clears throat> for a second. Um, you know, when <clears throat> Harper was in... Atlantic Canada a number of years ago, he said, you know, we're, we suffer from a, a, a culture of defeat. I didn't agree with him at that point. I thought we suffered from a culture of dependence. And this is, I, I think, part of the victimhood uh, thing that you're talking about as well, that Atlantic Canadians over a long period of time became more and more uh, used to government to uh, solve problems rather than, you know, private sector or society overall. And I, I think there's an interesting parallel between what he was saying and what you're saying, don't you think? Absolutely. You know, I've reflected long and hard about Stephen Harper's comments. And I think in a way he was misunderstood. I think what he was talking about was that we had created a culture of dependency. Uh, it was an unfortunate choice of words, but I don't think he meant what he said. Um, and indeed, we have created over the years a culture of dependency. Now, the good news is that we're breaking away from it. I mean, just, just go between, drive from Moncton to Truro to Halifax, if you want to see growth, stability, in a way that we've never seen before. Uh, so we're growing away from it. Uh, but I don't think, I never faulted Harper for saying what he did. Perhaps because I saw it more as an argument that he was saying that we had created a culture of dependency. And a dependency, if you become dependent on, on, some, on somebody or something, you are a victim. Um, and that's, that's how it came together. Uh, Donald, you spend quite a bit of time talking about public spending as a, as a potential driver of this regional victimhood. I, at least that's how I read it. Um, you do provide a good primer on this. You talk about federal cash in the earliest days of Confederation, but also the rise of the welfare state after the World War II, and who pays for that, um, uh, and which regions get more money or less money. Can you elaborate a bit uh, on your view that this public spending has been a, a, a driver of uh, regional grievances? Think about Western Canada and equalization, all those battles we're having these days about uh, you know, Alberta paying for gold-plated services in Atlantic Canada? Yes. Um, I think when it comes to public spending, there's different forms of public spending. Uh, public spending that involves transfer payments for EI, for old-age pension, um, 
That's a form of public spending. There's another form of public spending, and that's what we've been seeing in Ontario by the federal government to prop up to grow the auto sector. And they're pouring billions into it. And if it weren't because we're Canadians in Canada, there would be no auto sector. I mean, they would have built it somewhere in Ohio. Why build it, say, in Windsor? The only reason is because we have Canada, and Canada said, look, we, you need to compensate for the number of cars that we're buying. So we struck uh, the auto pack in the 1960s. It changed the whole dynamic you know, of the auto sector. So when you pour billions into an auto plant, into Ontario, or a battery plant, as we're doing now, that's one form of public spending. When you pour billions into equalization payments, uh, that's to share the wealth. That's not to create wealth. So public spending in Ontario and Quebec is to create wealth. Public spending here is to share the wealth. Up until now, I think that's changing. But there's a different form of public spending. And I think we Maritimers figured that out and said, this, you know, this is not fair. Um, and that's why we're seeing changes. So one of the things I appreciated about the book is that you do basically elaborate that everybody's a victim, at least in their mind. You talk about the West, Ontario, the Maritimes. Uh, you talk about a lot of other specific groups. So in, in one way, that's comforting. But you also suggest, I think, that most of these um, grievances or this sense of victimhood is probably not built on anything real. I did want to come back to the to the concept of the maritime provinces. So you you suggest instead of transferring money, uh, maybe I'm going to get this wrong, but you even I think called it guilt money. I don't I don't know if I think I got that term right. Yeah, you think it is guilt money. Yeah, it's yeah, guilt so money you, in the party. Yeah, right. So you thought you your view, which I think is very interesting to our audience, is that instead of the guilt money, the region should the the federal government or national policy should be more adjusted to accommodate regional economic circumstances which I think has been a theme you've written about many, many times over the years. So I guess the question for you is, do you think the federal government has figured that out and is getting better at adjusting national policies to accommodate regional economic circumstances? Yeah, you're absolutely correct. That's what I'm talking about. And I happily, I think the federal government started to figure that out. Um, and we see evidence of it. Look at the Ottawa's policy on new Canadians. We, they're, they're reshaping a national policy to accommodate regional interests. It's a start. But why can't we do that in transportation in every sector? Because national policy only works in Ontario and Quebec. I mean, we have the whole history of it. And so when you, when, you, when you adjust policies to reflect regional circumstances, you're going to have real economic growth rather than a dependency. So we're starting to see signs of it. It's positive signs. It's working. Um, we see new Canadians, both of you have seen it in Halifax and Moncton. We see it all the time. And it is working. We, I, I remember, uh, I'm old enough you know, to, to remember when the goal of regional policy was to create jobs, to transfer jobs from Nigeria and Quebec, the whole DREE concept. It was to provide subsidies so that we can, we can create jobs here. The challenge now is not to create jobs. The challenge now is to find people to fill the job. And so new Canadians coming in, it's a godsend for us, but it speaks to the point that the national government can adjust its policies to reflect regional, you know, regional uh, circumstances. So it's a hell of a good start. It's a, and let's keep, you know, let's keep at it. Um, one of the other things you do in the book before I hand it back to Don is you talk about regional differences and grievances, but you also talk about specific demographic and ethnic groups, which is probably a little more sensitive in the current context. And I think you also mentioned that as well. You talk about Acadians, women, uh, immigrants, indigenous, black Canadians. Uh, you talk about many, many examples of groups that have had grievance in the past or have or currently have grievance. Uh, and I think it's very interesting and nuanced your, your take on that. But one of the groups you think is still problematic and that they have a, 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 reason, a very reasonable uh, right to the term victim is the indigenous populations in the country. You spend a whole lot of time talking about that. You have a whole chapter on that. You cover the history very, very well. It's very, very, it's a good primer on the history of the relationship between indigenous and non-indigenous in this country. 
going back to pre-confederation. So, and you also believe there's deep-seated racism toward indigenous people. I think that's the term you use because I have it in quotes in my notes here. Um, do you think we're making progress and what do we need to do to right this historical wrong with the indigenous population in this country? We are making progress in spots. We are making progress in some communities. There is a community in Cape Breton, and I'm sure John knows about this, that's doing really well compared to its neighbors. There are communities in British Columbia that are doing very well. Unfortunately, it's, it's, it's only in spots, it's only in places. And if you, if you look at why you see a governance structure that's better than in the other communities, in the case of Cape Breton, they've really come up with something in terms of governance that you don't see in other, other communities. So people can say to the natives or to aboriginals, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. I think it's a bit, that's asking too much because the Indian Act was not something that the aboriginals did. It's the, it was the federal government that in 1871 established the Indian Act. And that is a hell of handcuff on the community. So unless they shake away from that, and Cape Breton has been able to do so, uh, they're going to have a, a serious problem. So how do we, are they the only victims left? I argue that, you know, I don't see Acadians as victims at all. I don't see Maritimers, given what we've seen the past 20, 20, 30 years, I don't see Maritimers as victims. If I can have a bit on the side, a couple of days ago, an Anglophone, a monk, a Monctonian Anglophone came to me and said, I'm reading your book. I didn't know this individual. Oh, he said, wow, we really got screwed. Canada screwed us really bad. We got to do something. <laughs> <laughs> That's not the purpose of the book. But in, in reading the book for him, we got screwed. And he brought up the Chinooka Canal. And I said, sure, we built it in 1872 like we were supposed to, like the federal government made a pledge to us uh, at the time of Confederation. Maybe we wouldn't have the problem we're dealing with now, and and on and on. But the, the whole purpose was not, I didn't want him to continue to view himself as a victim, because we're not. And I can get into that if you wish. The Native communities are victims still. And it's not just, it's not on them alone. It's on us as well. I remember growing up in a small Acadian village, about 40 miles north of Moncton. And I remember every summer, two Native women would come. They would walk from a community that was about oh, 30 miles away to sell baskets. And I remember people in my community saying, well, we have to buy those baskets. Otherwise, they're gonna put a curse on our houses, our barn, our animals. And so people bought those baskets, not because they needed them, because they were afraid of, that the native would have a curse. Now, think about that. Think what how it shaped the thinking of so many maritimes, there's so many Canadians. So yes, there's deep-seated racism, and we have to attend to it. It's unfair to ask the Native communities to deal with their problems alone. You know, uh, the, the, the topic of uh, the, the Indigenous uh, challenges comes up a lot in, in my social circles. Uh, we're all trying to figure out <clears throat> what needs to be done uh, to move this reconciliation along uh, quicker. Uh, one of the things that's happening right now in Halifax is the Indigenous Games, and um, I don't know if you've been following that or not, yes. but it's a it's a great, you know, it's a, a great example of the right things to do from the Indigenous community's point of view because what it's doing is showca showcasing their their culture, uh, leading to you know better understanding and and respect for their culture. This is a, this is something that I think has been missing a bit in 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 in. Uh, the conversations between um, uh, Canadians and the Indigenous peoples, and I, you know, I, I think it's a step in the right direction. Um, but the other thing I, that I hear a lot is that you know, Canadians today have, who have had nothing to do with the past, you know, feel again like victims, you know, in the way that they think about what's going on because they didn't cause the problems. They don't see themselves as being racist. They, they're looking for solutions to make things better. But you know. They, they kind of feel like they are being held as, you know, as part of the problem when then they're really not. And so that I think that's a big challenge, don't you think, in terms of trying to find a way forward between uh, Canadians in general and Indigenous communities? You're absolutely correct. Let me add to that. 
you started off by saying this book is very personal. It is indeed very personal. So what I did, I walked around my neighborhood. I have some very good neighbors. I'm blessed with great neighbors. And I talked to them about what I was working on and so on. When it came to Native communities, every and they're really decent, good Canadians, really lovely neighbors. But every one of them said, oh, God, no. We keep pouring billions into them, and they, they screw it up every time. So, no, don't they, they don't accept. Um, what I see, they don't see. And so right. they weren't there in 1872. They weren't there in 1867. They weren't there in 1840. So they're saying, what's wrong with us? It is a challenge. I think we have to explain that history matters, and history matters in all communities, and we have to deal with history and the challenges that history has brought upon themselves. I, I also want to add a comment about Member 2, which is what you referred yeah. to. Member 2 has been a shining example of, uh, of a community taking uh, control of their own destiny, I guess. And, you know, they're part of the big uh, buyout of Clearwater. I mean, that enormous deal, you know. Uh, like they, uh, And there's, there are other uh, um, Indigenous communities in, in Atlantic Canada that are following that example. Millbrook is another one in Tr near Truro. And there's a, a couple in, in, in New Brunswick as well, especially yes. dealing with um, renewable energy. You know, so the path ahead is, is pretty clear, don't you think, in terms of, uh, you know, it, it's economic as the base. Of, you know, the economic side needs to be resolved, right? And, and, it, it, and to your point, there's lots of progress evidence, maybe not fast enough, but at least moving in the right direction. And, and it takes those communities to show others the road ahead. Look, I agree. And I think if you look at the case in Cape Breton, the case in British Columbia and Yukon, uh, and in New Brunswick as well, there's two communities here doing quite well. I think if you look at the ingredients of why they're doing well, how they were able to build on success is through their governance practice. They, 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 they had to deal with the Indian Act, but they, de they deal with it in such a creative way. They have elections. Um, in the case of Cape Breton, I think they hold it every four years rather than every two. Uh, so they've, they've restructured their governance, and that goes a long way. And communities that are stuck with the Indian Act of 1870 or 1870s, they haven't been able to move the goalposts as much. So I think lessons learned start with governance. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's a great point. I want to ask you how Canada compares with other countries on the issue of victimhood. Are we are we unique? I, I think the way that we were formed, I think this comes out of your writing. We're quite unique in the way the country is formed to begin with. But, you know, are, are, have we specialized in victimhood in Canada? Yeah, we're the leading expert in the world. We really are. <laughs> and if you look... If you look at the number of times that prime ministers and premiers have offered an apology for past misdeeds, we hold a record. And it's not just left-wing liberal prime ministers and premiers. I mean, Stephen Harper apologized a few times. Daniel Williams in Newfoundland apologized. And so, yeah, we, it's part of our culture. It's part of our culture to see, look, we did, you know, there are past wrongs, and we have to acknowledge them. If you look at Britain, U.S., they still haven't apologized. If you look at France and the colonial past and what they did in Africa, they, they don't apologize. So that's <laughs> history. But we in Canada, we look at past wrongs and we own up to them. You know, it's quite funny when you think about it. You know, Canadians are well known for saying sorry. I mean, we're mocked around the world for saying it's. You, it, it's an example of the cultural. The thing that we have in Canada, that we we just say sorry. We bump into somebody and say, "Oh, sorry." You know, it's just like it's part of our makeup. It seems it's really, you know, quite amazing. Are, are we better or worse at identifying and recognizing the wrongs against specific groups? Uh, you know, you you mentioned the Americans in Great Britain and France are really not in the habit of uh, making apologies, but you know, is that a, is that actually a benefit? To our society, the ability to recognize and, and at least try to address the past? I think it is. I think it's part of Canadian values. Look, if you go to England, they've got a fascinating history. I've studied there, I've lived there, and I'm going back. Um, but if you look at what England did to Ireland, I mean, it's just incredible what they did to Ireland. Um, they've never apologized. 
Tony Blair came close to it and he was brought back to his senses. And so, yeah, we, we are different. We are different than Americans, British, and French. We are very different because it's because of our institutions, it's because of the way it shapes our political culture. We do recognize past wrong deeds, and I think it's good. I'm very proud to be Canadian. You also assert that Canada has a strong culture of compromise. Yeah, I think we actually are good at that. Uh, and, and does that help us in terms of rectifying grievances relative to other countries that you've studied? Yes, we are much better at comp And here's why. In 1865, Sir, jo Sir Johnny MacDonald um, felt that the best way to grow Canada was to bring institutions that were born and grew in Britain, bring them to Canada, lock, stock, and barrel. In fact, the first part of our constitution says we have a constitution similar to what it is in England, in Great Britain. We're not, and it, it, it's quite elaborate in terms of borrowing all of our institutions from Great Britain. We brought them here. And then it didn't take very long to realize, oof, these institutions really don't work that well. But the constitution is so rigid, so rigid that we have to find a way to work around it. And we did. And we're still working you know, a way around it. So that gave us the ability to compromise. That's where it was born. And that's where it grew. And we still, we still live by it. One of the interesting things you say in here is that you say it's become easier to blame political leaders rather than institutions. And I think as part of the national sort of narrative, I think that makes a makes a lot of sense to me. But I guess that the question for you is how does that impact our ability to address the challenges if we're if we're focused on our political leaders rather than the, our institutions? Well, it's difficult for Canadians to focus on their institutions because our institutions don't square with the interests of Canada. And so we have to focus on certain things. So we look to our leaders. I mean, focusing on the House of Commons or the <laughs> Senate, who would do that? Who would focus on the Senate as a way to solve our challenges or deal with our challenges? Who would focus on the House of Commons? Who would focus on the Governor General? So what we have, what we are left with are political leaders, and we have to focus on them because there's no other way. In the U.S., they have checks and balances. They have, you know, if you don't like the president, you can turn to Congress. Uh, in Britain, they, they have a very different system, and so we we took a system that didn't really square with how to make Canada work, and we've been able to make it work through compromise. You know, there's been a fair amount of uh, backlash from um, uh, decisions to um, eliminate names from public uh, buildings and you know, statues in Halifax. We had the Cornwallis statue removed from uh, from a park. Uh, you know, uh, our first prime minister's name is being removed from schools and other things. Uh, you, you, also, you say that we can't rewrite history, but, you know, it seems like we're doing that. Why is this, why is it important not to rewrite history, Donnell? Well, look, I'm not a big fan of changing names. My University of Moncton is University of Moncton. I've taken a position for it quite squarely that it should remain. We should remain as the University of Moncton in Moncton. Uh, the military officer Moncton did what he was told in, in 1754 and again in Quebec in 1760. Um, I go to St. John and I see a statue of, Sam, uh, of Samuel Tilly. My blood boils. He led New Brunswick down the garden path in terms of confederation. He bought it. Then Albert Smith has nothing. But in 1865, Albert Smith, Premier of New Brunswick, said, this deal is not good for us. It's not going to work. I'm not against confederation, but we have to we have to come up with a better deal that will square with Nova Scotia and New Brunswick interests. He's forgotten. Samuel Tilly has a statue. Now, I, I'm, I would prefer a statue of Albert Smith, but I accept that history is history. I can't rewrite it. I have to live with it. I have to accept it. University of Moncton is, uh, is named after Moncton. That's history. And so I, I, I've never bought into the argument that we should alter history by changing names. It's, it's, to me, it's meaningless. So I've, I'm on the other side of that one. Well, certainly we need to learn from history. I think it's important to tell the stories and, 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 and make people aware of it. But it is our history. 
it's like you you know you just can't you can't whitewash it basically you've, you've got to you know accept the good with the bad i think don't you yes um, absolutely four square in total agreement i i just i don't see merit in it i don't see what it does uh sir john mcdonald um was quite the politician now he did things that don't square with the interests of the maritime provinces he did things that don't square with the interests of native communities but he did other things. We are Canadians today in part because of him. So accept the good and the bad, accept who he was, accept his role in society. You can't whitewash his role. He's an important part of who we are. The, the subtitle of your book is uh, Beyond Grudges, Grievances and Disunity. Uh, I want to ask you, how do we transition away from victimhood? Because it really isn't a good place to be, I, th I don't think. You know, and what perhaps is the role of our political institutions in 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 getting out of this uh, this way of thinking about uh, the world around us? Well, no, victimhood is it it disempowers people. I mean, the only way people are going to grow is to feel empowered. So, a victim, if you're a victim, you give up even before you start. And so, I uh, how do we do it? How do we grow? I think I look at my own experience as an occasion. And we, for the life of me, we are no longer victims. We were at one time, we no longer are. If you, look, if you come to Moncton and, and you see the number of bright entrepreneurs, there's so many of them are engaging. And so what happened? Why did we, why were we able to do it? Well, we became in fashion. It was in fashion in, 18, in 1970s and 80s. Oh, they did well. Let's do something. Uh, and so being in fashion helps. But there's the critical factor, in my view, was our premier, Louis de Michaud. He, he showed us the way. He did everything. I mean, if we don't do it now, it's our fault. Because he gave us all the tools. And I repeat, all the tools that we needed to grow and prosper. And if we don't do it now, we can't blame government. We can't blame others. He gave us all the tools. But there are no other tools that we need to grow. And the, the past 30 years are showing that Acadians have taken those tools and are growing. And so we are no longer victims. Maritimers, I argue, are less and less victims. And I see the day when we no longer we can drop that label forever. And I think part of why um, David may have some comments on this, but part of the reason is what happened in, eight, uh, in 1988 when we got a free trade agreement. It opened a whole market for us that was closed. National policy did us in. When they dropped that, they dropped national policy and opened the borders to to new opportunities. Maritimer says, geez, let's go. Look at what John Bragg has done. Look at what the Irvings have done. They're capturing new markets all over the world. And they start with New England. Uh, and so I think Maritimers are less and less victims. Quebec, I mean, if Quebec, you have to have a creative mind to think that you're a victim. Uh, uh, promise of material, I mean, I get into a chapter where somebody said, how in the hell are you going to make them victims? Well, I made them victims. And if you read my chapter, they see themselves as victims because of transfer payments and on and on. Western Canada, I think Western Canada, Ottawa needs to attend to the challenges of Western Canada. And they, we need to attend with a sense, with a sense of urgency. Because there's some, there's some deep-seated issues. So I'm going to come back and ask you a question about Western Canada. But before I get there, I wanted to come back to your discussion around Louis J. Robichaud and the rise of the Acadians. I think that has been an amazing story and you've documented it in several books. Obviously there's still some concerns, but you, I think it's fair to say you view that story of progress as a great success story, but you also say, and again, I have this in quotes, so I think it's pretty close to what you said, is that the efforts undertaken by LJR in the 60s could not happen in today's political climate. And so, I'm concerned when we talk about rectifying and addressing the indigenous challenges and, and, and making sure working to make sure that they are successful in the next generation. But then you say we couldn't do what LJR did. So does that apply to what we're trying to address with, with our First Nations and indigenous populations? Unfortunately, yes. Here's why we were able to do it in the 60s, why I think it's, it's barely possible today. And both of you will remember those days. David, you're a bit younger than us, us too. But in the 60s and 70s, we believed in government. 
we believe in government as a positive force. We believe that government could come up with programs, would come up with policy. We believe that governments could actually deliver in a very efficient manner programs and policy. I don't see that anymore. I think Canadians, Maritimers included, are losing, losing confidence in the ability of government to come up with policy and deliver programs in a way that we that was not uh, at all uh, 40, 50 years ago. So if we are losing confidence in the ability of government to get things done, to come up with the right policies, to deliver programs, I mean, just look at what happened over the past three, four years with the passport fiasco. Uh, there are so many programs that are not delivered properly. And Canadians know that. And so when you're asking Canadians, we need uh, a body of new policies, a body of new programs to help communities or regions. Canadians say, oh, God, government can't be true and uh, true government walk at the same time. How can they come up with new policies? So today's environment is vastly different than it was 50 years ago because uh, Canadians have lost confidence in the ability of government to get things done. And we're, we're going to pay a high price for but I think it, it, this is a problem. It can't be either or. You have to be able to believe in the importance of government, but also in the importance of the private market and in, in, in actual, right? So that we've, we've all, we can't demonize government and, and glorify industry. At the same time, we can't, I mean, we have to be able to do both. We have to be able to have government and, and success in government. So I, I, um, I hope you're wrong about that. I hope we can reimagine government and, and our belief in government to be able to solve some of these big problems. But I want to come back to Western Canada quickly before I turn it back to Don. I don't want to let that one go. I want to come back to that one too, by the way, <laughs> no, but let's go talk about Western Canada. Uh, <laughs> you do, you do uh, spend a lot of time in the book, a full chapter on Western Canada, and you think those in, differences are real, or those challenges are real, although you're a little unsympathetic because of the fact that the, you know, the West has been quite successful economically. But I wanted to ask you about the specific issue around oil and gas. Now, maybe you don't necessarily have to answer from an, your opinion on it, but just how we rectify it in this in this context of, of victimhood. So the federal government has said we're going to be basically stop pumping oil by 2050. We're going to phase it out. We're going to stop pumping oil. The West has said, now we're going to be pumping just as much oil in 2050 as we are today. We're going to do new pipelines to North, uh, through Manitoba to, to, uh, um, uh, and, and ship out through the port in Manitoba. And that we're going to get to net zero by re reducing carbon, uh, uh, the carbon intensity or, or doing carbon capture and storage or whatever. I'm not an expert on those issues. I just know that these two are at loggerheads. The federal government is saying no more oil and gas. Alberta is saying lots of oil and gas. And this is a the prime example, I think, of the difference between the view in the West and the federal view coming out of Ottawa, and it has a, it has implications for Newfoundland and Labrador as well. But how do you rectify these differences when they're so fundamental and they go to the very heart, uh, very structure of your economy and your society? Well, if the oil and gas sector were located in Ontario and Quebec rather than Western Canada. I think we would have come up with more creative ways to deal with the problem. I really believe that. Um, Western Canada doesn't have the clout to bring forward creative policy. Look, Norway is, is developing its oil and gas sector in a very environmentally friendly way. If Norway can do it, why can't we? We are going to burn fuel. We are. And so when we had the opportunity for Energy East Pipeline that we dropped, because Quebec opposed it, because Ottawa backed away because Quebec opposed it, had we done that, it would be a different story in Europe today. But what do we do? 50% of, of, of the oil that's imported into St. John's, Irving, it's, it's, it's from Western Canada. Do you know how they get it? They get it through a pipeline that goes to Louisiana, and then it's on a boat into St. John's. Does that make sense to you? Uh, it doesn't to me. We could have built that pipeline, and today Europe would be better off. Ukraine would be much better off. Canada would be much better off. Western Canada would be much better off. Atlantic Canada would, would be much better off. So dealing with the environment and, and fossil fuels, if some countries can do it better than us, why can't we do it? Why can't we borrow a page from Norway? Why? because I don't think Western Canada has a political club to bring it on the agenda and say, we need to do something about this. 
You know, David and I have talked about this topic uh, quite a bit. And <clears throat> one of the things that I think is missing is that our political leadership has not told Canadians what to expect in terms of the oil and gas industry. You know, people actually think that by 2050, there will be no oil and gas. It, it's not, it's, it's not going to happen. People need to recognize that, you know, we, we're going to have to find other ways to get to net zero because we're going to need that energy. There's no replacement for it that, that's on the horizon unless some magical thing appears. And, and so, you know, there needs to be truth in the conversation about uh, uh, dealing with carbon. And, and, and uh, as you mentioned, Norway is a good example. You know, I was to Norway not that long ago. It's a remarkable, it's a small country. But, you know, they, for, first of all, you know, one of the big things that they did is they, they, they created a fund for their oil industry that, you know, we have failed in Canada largely to do. Newfoundland is starting to do it now. Alberta's done it and backed away from it. But they have that sovereignty fund or whatever. And they've reinvested in terms of making their um, their uh, climate, uh, you know, uh, goals, uh, you know, very successful. Uh, almost all their vehicles now, I think, or most of them are electrical vehicles in in. in in Norway, they've been able to reinvest those monies back into making their climate as clean as possible. I think they may, may have the cleanest climate in Europe at the moment, you know, but they're still doing oil and gas. You know, we, we need to tell Canadians the truth so that we can we can re set expectations appropriately, you know. And I think that that's why so many Canadians are having trouble with things like the uh, carbon uh, tax and uh, other things. They, they don't they don't understand what what's needed to get to net zero and the politicians keep saying, yeah, they, you know, we need to get there, but you know, there, there are things along the way that people need to understand. So I personally find it frustrating uh, that, you know, we've had people on that talk about oil and gas and, 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 you know, trying to get the word out that, you know, it's not going to disappear and, 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 and we're going to need it. We're just going to need another way of making sure it doesn't harm the environment. And, and, you know, that's, I think that's the point that you're making, Vanella, that, um, you know, I saw a, a, a graph today that was really interesting. They, they put the, uh, the the 10 provinces with the 50 states. Did you see that, David? It was on yes, social media. Yep. And the only two provinces <laughs> that compete uh, on a productivity scale for GDP per capita was Alberta and Saskatchewan, the only two. Newfoundland was the third. Now they're all oil-based economies. You know that that's that's a that's a signal, I think, of how important those industries are for those provinces. And you can understand why they're pushing back against Ottawa when it comes to their their oil and gas sector. Well, and Richard Sion told us recently, Don, that the only provinces that came off equalization <laughs> did so on the back of oil and gas: Saskatchewan and Newfoundland and Labrador. So. It's complicated. There's no doubt. I guess. I guess. Donald, the question is though: is is that ever rectifiable? If that's even a word, or are we just going to see constant tension now between Ottawa and Western Canada for the next thirty years? Well, I hope we see some tensions for the next thirty years because it means that Canada continues to exist, um, and, and that's my wish. Um, but you know, back to this energy East pipeline. And former mayor, Quebec, former mayor of Montreal explained why it didn't happen. Uh, Alberta has 20-some uh, MPs. Quebec has 76. That's the reason. He said it. I mean, at least he owned up to it. But Don is absolutely right. I think it's important. It's incumbent on the national government to come clean on the challenges ahead and to say we're not going to uh, be off oil and gas in 20 years from now, 30 years. We're not. Simple as that. We need a refinery. Uh, we can grow the economy, we can protect the environment. Let's have an honest debate about it. We haven't had that. Uh, moving on to another topic, under the banner of diversity, equity and inclusion, there has been a lot of effort to highlight the times in Canadian history where things haven't gone, have been done that harm groups. And I think this has led to a certain level of uh, disillusionment among our young people in particular, you know, because they, you know, they, they're idealistic, obviously, and, and, and you know they don't see uh, they don't see how these things are going to be resolved. But is there a way 
to shine a light on issues without bringing down the whole idea of Canada as a decent country. Like, like you know, when I hear the, the, the Conservatives saying Canada is broken, like, it, it infuriates me that that is not the case. You know, we have our we have our challenges, but we are not broken, you know, and and and, and I, you know, we need to push back on some of that discussion for sure. But, you know, what else can we do um, to deal with these issues without harming the country? Look, I agree with you. Um, Canada is not broken. Quite the opposite. Canada is quite healthy. We are not a broken country. Um, we've been able to make it work. I asked myself that question when I started working on this book. Is there, is there another country I'd rather be a citizen than Canada? The answer clearly, loudly, is no. There's no better country. Uh, and I think a lot of Canadians think like me. So, uh, no, Canada's not broken. But it opens the door for me to get back to David's point about, about government. We had confidence in government 50 years ago. We don't today. I think we need to look at that. If we, are going to have, if we are going to have faith in the ability of government to get things done, to come up with policies, to deal with challenges, we have to ask fundamental questions whether they're still capable of doing that. David, you have a federal government that saw an increase in its size by 25%. You have a federal government that now spends over $16 billion a year in consultants. We have a federal government that's, what, 50, no, 43% of its staff are in Ottawa, in a country as large as diverse as Canada. So can that can that apparatus, can that system deliver the goods? I argue not. I argue that we've lost confidence, our kings are losing confidence in government. When they say Canada is broken, Canada is not broken. The federal government may be on the verge of being broken, but that doesn't mean that Canada is broken. And so if we are going to have confidence in the ability of national government to deliver policies and programs, we better start thinking about fixing the machinery because it, it is not working. But I, I just want to jump in on that because I agree with you, but I still think that some Canadians have translated that to we don't need government. They're, they're incompetent. They're, you know, what, what, let's just cut them back. Let's get rid of them. Let's, you know, let's, let's rely on the private sector to take everything over from healthcare to education to everything else. And I think there's certainly a huge role for the private sector. Private sector is fundamental to a successful society. But I think we have to have a strong government. I'm not. I'm a. I'm a huge believer in the private market. I'm a, a big believer in capitalism. But I. I still think we need a strong government. So you've diagnosed the problems. Absolutely, it's not about size. It's not about the amount of money you spend on government. It's not about the amount of employees we have in government. Certainly not about about the consultants that we pay. Although I get my share, so I have to be careful. Um, <laughs> But at the end of the day, I still think we have to have a strong, it doesn't have to be large, but we have to have a, a effective government. And I, I hope, uh, I hope, Donald, you, you agree with me on that. I agree. Sure. Um, we can't. Uh, the reality is, though, that the private sector is far more efficient than the public sector. Let's start with that. Let, and if that's the case, then maybe the healthcare challenges that we face, maybe if we had a bit of competition in that sector, maybe we would do better. And so, uh, can we get rid of government? No. I mean, think for a moment, if we had no government, if we had no politicians, I mean, it would be chaos. It'd be utter chaos. Who would look after our borders? The strong would be stronger and the weak would be weaker. And I could go on to a whole list. No. The solution is not to get rid of government altogether. The solution is to fix it. And if I were to speak to national political leaders, that should be one of your top three priorities. The environment could be one. Native communities can be true, but fixing the federal government, the ability to come up with policies, the ability to deliver programs in an efficient manner, that has to be your number one challenge. And if we don't do that, we are at risk of losing too much. We can't keep growing the federal government the way we are growing it. We can't keep throwing money at consultants the way we are. We can't keep doing that and having less services, less quality of services, and less efficient policies. We need to figure that out. And that's what federal politicians should be doing. Now, if I can plug my next book, I have a book coming out next April and May on that very issue. So maybe that's why I'm raising it. Well, you know, we could, we'd like to have that conversation because one of my pet peeves is the um, what we get for the money we spend on taxes. I just came out with a column on that recently. 
you know, and we've been disadvantaged in the land of Canada from a tax point of view for some time because, <clears throat> you know, we had a slow growing economy and, and hardly any growth in the number of taxpayers. So, you know, we got, you know, kept being taxed higher and higher uh, levels. And so it's, we're not really competitive at the moment. <clears throat> but uh, nonetheless, um, the, the, the whole issue about productivity in government is something that nobody wants to talk about. I had a friend of mine who works with one of the national REITs. Um, and he was telling me that his, uh, they, they control 25, uh, they manage 25,000 units, 25,000 units. Um, <clears throat> their finance department has 25 people in it. They have $2 billion in debt to manage as part of that. He compared it to that Nova Scotia Housing uh, Commission that had a little over 10,000 units to manage. They had 45 people in their finance department and they had no debt to manage. You know, that, that, that little comparison says it all to me, you know, in terms of what we're getting for our tax dollars. It's a, it's a conversation I think, David, you and I need to, we need to tackle because nobody's talking about it and it's time for government to start to take a look at how productive they are in delivering the programs and services that they give to Canadians. And then, you know, the growth in the public sector has been outrageous compared to the private sector for years. That's another topic for another day. We're going to come back to that one, I think. But while we're here, we want to ask you about the Maritimes and the recent uh, population growth spurt. You know, I, like you, I've been trying to figure out what's wrong with Atlantic Canada for most of my life. And it turns out the biggest thing that was wrong is that we weren't getting our fair share of population growth because that seems to be the key of the success locally uh, in, in the region. And, and as you know, in the past two years, all three Maritime provinces have seen population growth you know, faster than all other provinces. It's, it's, a, it's a miracle almost. Uh, what do you think about this trend and is it sustainable? Well, I hope it is sustainable. I love the trend. I, I have friends who moved from, from uh, Toronto to Moncton. Uh, look, the quality of life here is really something else. We can't trade that for any, for any other region, any other benefits. Our quality of life is number one. It's number one in Canada in the world, and it's number one in the maritime provinces within Canada. So we, we are in a win-win. I think people are realizing that. But I come back also to two factors. Um, I think the free trade agreement has far more impact on our region than people give it credit for. I really do. I think I talk to entrepreneurs, and they, they, an entrepreneur told me the Americans only look at their market because there's 300 million. Why would they look anywhere else? They can feed that market. We maritimers, we don't have that market, so we are much more aggressive. We go to New England and so on. But the free trade agreement opened doors. I think that's an important factor. Second, I think the ability of the federal government somehow, some way, to adjust its national policies on immigration to accommodate Atlantic Canada's interests, that goes a long way. So is it sustainable? Yes, I think it is. The level, what, I, what I'm most impressed with as I grow older, is the, the, the new dynamic entrepreneurs I see in this region. It is really something to see. It's not like it was 40 years ago. They are aggressive, they know they can win, and they are winning. If it's sustainable, I think it is. Um, uh, you have written in your book about the fact that Confederation reoriented trade in Canada east-west, and it used to be north-south for this region. So you you have been on that theme for many years, and I think that's absolutely right. So free trade, NAFTA, and other free trade allowed us to do more of the north-south trade and not be as reliant on east-west trade. And you actually see that in the data. Our share of interprovincial exports has actually gone down relative to international exports. So I think that's an incredibly important point. And Don, we need to pick up on that and make sure we're covering that here in the podcast. Um, I do I do think, Donald, the very first time I ever met you, you were giving a presentation at a co it's probably 20 years ago. And you said economic development is about people and money. Two things. I don't even know if you remember this. You probably don't. And all the ACOA people were there with clipboards and they were writing down, oh, people, money, people, no, really? What, what great wisdom. Well, but then they never, they ignored the people thing, right? So we went through many, many years with, with workforce stagnation and decline until somewhere about five, six, seven years ago, ACOA and the Fed said, well, you know what, we need people. And we have seen an increase in immigration and that's been very successful. But I, I still remember that, that little talk you gave and you were absolutely right. 
the essence of it is to be able to boil it down to themes like that. And you did a good job. I have one last question for you before we end our conversation today. Uh, you study economic development uh, in this region. Uh, you, you've, you've given a lot of insight over the years. You were the father of a co, et cetera, et cetera. I just wanted to ask you about our economic development right now. And I have a little bit of a concern that now that we're seeing this, this population surge, that governments will kind of ignore the underlying need for economic development, export-led growth, uh, you know, fostering successful new dynamic entrepreneurs like the generation of Acadian entrepreneurs that we saw over the last 30 years. Do you think governments are doing enough right now to focus on economic development in our region? Well, on the Father of Ecuador, I've been referred to that many times, and I always say it may be, but I never met the mother. <laughs> um, role of government, yeah, David, I come back to the point. Yes, the government, the governments plural, have a role to play. My wish and my concern now is that we have to have a better, better, more efficient government, a better capacity to plan but more importantly, a better capacity to deliver. Akawa has 650 people. When I wrote the report for Brian Maroney in 1687, I suggested 100. And I suggested 25% should be from the private sector, borrow for, for two or three years, and then send them back. It would be it would create a dynamic core. The, the 100 is now 650, it was up to 700. That's a lot of people to deliver programs. Not only that, but every government department, provincially, federally, also has uh, public service delivery programs and economic development. So we have a whole army, armies of public service. I think, sure, there's a role of government to play there, but I think government have to, have to be better at doing what they are doing. That's my next book. So you guys invite me back next, next spring and we'll talk about that one. We'll have to write you in as the standing yeah. offer, yeah. <laughs> We're going to do that before because this is a big topic for me. Again, uh, on the issue of economic, economic development, I wrote a column about a year or so ago, and I, I talked about all the different players. We have so many players in economic development. Yes, I remember keep, that. I remember we, that. I remember that. Can't keep, can't keep it straight, and we're spending, you know, literally billions of dollars. And I, the question I ask is, what are we getting for that that expenditure? It's hard to determine. It's the right question to ask. <clears throat> and and yeah. it, it actually it actually informed me, Danelle. I was involved with the formation of the Halifax Partnership way back when, and we used the the model that that kind of a, a quota you you wanted for a COA, which was um, you know a public private uh, economic development partnership, and and that's actually worked out pretty well. Um, you know, the private sector actually puts money into the partnership. And, and plays a role uh, in, in the governance of the organization. It's got kind of an independent board uh, that keeps it on its straight and narrow. And I think that that model is being adopted more and more uh, across the region. Um, the Cape Breton certainly has done it. Uh, St. John is uh, moving in that uh, area with their new Envision uh, model. So hopefully we can get more condensed uh, delivery of uh, economic development activities as a result. I agree, John. It, I, I agree, John. It will require a lot of political will. Mm. It will require uh, the, uh, the ability of our political re leaders to focus on that issue and not uh, get the eyes. A politician asked me recently, who has done it right? Who has done it poorly? I don't want to take too much of your time, but I recall, and I said to this politician, remember when Brian Mulroney said he was going to give running shoes and pink slicks in 1983 before he, before he became prime minister? Well, there were no pink slips, no running shoes. And by the time he, he finished, the public service federal was bigger than when he first came into power. Stephen Harper, the belief was that he was going to cut down government to size. Well, the federal government grew. It didn't, it didn't, it was not cut back to size. So who's done it right? I said, the one that's done it right is Margaret Thatcher, because she kept focusing on that issue. Brian Maroney focused on free trade, on HST, on Meech Lake. He took his eyes off the ball. I don't blame him. If I Prime Minister, I might have done the same thing. But the difference between him and, and, and Margaret Thatcher was that she kept at it, at it month after month. That's the kind of political commitment that would be needed to fix this problem. 
I'll just I'll just end by saying that public spending under Frank McKenna averaged only one percent per year. So in real ter- inflation adjusted terms, spending went down. Now, of course, the Lord folks came in after him and spent all this money because they said that they had to make up for all his underspending, which was kind of concerning because they're conservative. But anyway, that's a story maybe for another day. But McKenna, did keep, <laughs> McKenna kept spending down, and some of that was driven by the, the reduction in federal transfers. But at the end of the day, he was trying to drive private sector growth and limit the growth of the public sector. And I, I think, again, um, it's a complicated issue, maybe a discussion for another day. But Donald, we want to thank you so much for joining us today to talk about your new book. We encourage all of our listeners to run out and buy a copy. It's a very interesting book uh, and I'm sure they'll all uh, enjoy it. Thank you very much for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks for now. You've been listening to the Insights Podcast from the Acadia Broadcasting Corporation. Follow the show and listen to past episodes on your favorite podcast platform like Apple or Spotify. If you've enjoyed the show, why not recommend it to a friend? Don and David will be back next week with another deep dive into some key issues in Atlantic Canada.